Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and provide new guards for their future security. These words may sound radical to some people today, but in fact, they come from the Declaration of Independence, drafted in 1776. In this edition of Radio Curious, broadcast during Independence Week of 2005, we talk with Kenneth C. Davis, author of Don't Know Much About History, and review some of the issues of 1776 from our perspective now. I spoke with Kenneth C. Davis from his home in southern Vermont and asked him to begin by commenting on the role religion played in the Declaration of Independence. This is such a burning question these days, both in terms of historic America and obviously in terms of what's going on in our country today. You need only look at um, the, the questions that the Supreme Court has been dealing with this past year with the Pledge of Allegiance and the removal of the words under God, uh, the recent decision on the Ten Commandments, which was a sort of uh, uh, Solomonic decision, uh, splitting, kind of splitting hairs, but splitting the baby in, in, in two directions. And, and so this is a question that really does go back to our roots as a nation. And it was interesting when the whole Pledge of Allegiance uh, question came up initially in California, uh, Mr. Uh, Ashcroft, then Attorney General Ashcroft, uh, said that God was mentioned in five of our basic documents, the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, on our money, at the Gettysburg Address, and in the National Anthem. Well, four out of five isn't bad, but the Constitution certainly does not uh, uh, include any reference to a deity. And even the Declaration, uh, Jefferson was, of course, a deist. At the end of his life, many people could just call him an outright atheist. Um, he kind of used these polite euphemisms, nature's God, providence, uh, rather than you know, the Christian notion of God that a lot of uh, contemporary American Christians would like to think Jefferson was talking about. So these are questions that really go back to the central issue of religion in America, religion at the creation of America. There is no question in my mind, looking at this historically, and just from, from the historical record of what these men said and wrote, that many of them were very religious. They were uh, many of them were devout 
Christians. Um, but that was a word that uh, covered a lot of territory in those days. Did they come or their parents come to America or to the New World, as, as perhaps it was called then, for religious issues or was it more for economic issues? Can we distinguish the group of men that signed the Declaration of Independence in those terms? Uh, by the time that the, the 1776 rolls around, most of these uh, men were, and of course they were all men, were uh, usually first and second, perhaps even third generation Americans, although a few of them were recently arrived. One of the most interesting and overlooked of these founders, James Wilson, was a, a Scotsman who came to America literally with nothing, uh, built, uh, built uh, a substantial fortune. Uh, through hard Scotsman work and and uh, and and thrift, and um, was a signer of the Declaration, and is also the man who invented the Electoral College, although he didn't call it that. Um, curiously enough, uh, he's much overlooked. But he went bankrupt uh, at the end of his life. He was a su- sitting Supreme Court justice when he was arrested uh, uh, to, and was going to be thrown in debtor's prison. He actually jumped bail, uh, fled south, and where he died, destitute uh, and an embarrassment to the the country and certainly to his political party. So there abandoning was abandoning wide... the Supreme Court. Uh, absolutely, uh, uh, this this was, uh, I, I guess, a resignation uh, by default. But um, there was a wide breadth of of income. There was a wide breadth of religious experience. Uh, Charles Carroll was the only Roman Catholic signer of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, In many states uh, or colonies, there were laws that limited what Roman Catholics could do. Uh, There were laws against uh, Catholics voting, owning property. Um, So this notion of religious freedom at the base of uh, American, uh, the, or the arrival of so many Americans, usually meant religious freedom for me, not for you. Uh, the, uh, the Puritans who came to Massachusetts were not especially uh, tolerant of other groups. They hung Quakers in Boston in, in colonial times. In, um, in Virginia, where the Anglican Church, which the Puritans had escaped, uh, but was more established in, in Virginia, uh, they arrested the Baptists. Uh, and, and so you have this uh, tension amongst uh, so-called Christian groups from the very, very beginning of, of American history. What so is that, the source of this tension? It's, the source is, I think, that, that certainty that many people have that their faith is the true faith, and they are right, and everybody else is wrong, and if you want to believe, you have to believe what I believe. Uh, and that's so, pretty true in some parts of the United States and parts of the world now. Oh, absolutely. It's at the source of a great many of our, our problems around the world. Uh, absolutely. The, this notion of, of faith, religion, belief, uh, and the certainty that uh, people have about it uh, is certainly at the root of, of, of some of our very worst problems, both internationally and domestically. So let's take that concept and apply it to the period of time leading up to the signing, the drafting and the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Was there a change that was going on, a recognition of tolerance, or is that just a fiction? 
No, I, I think there really was, and uh, at least among many of the, the founders, uh, it, it was. First of all, these were men of the Enlightenment, and we can't uh, understate the importance of that whole movement in uh, European uh, civilization in, uh, in the preceding centuries. This was a complete rejection of the notions that, uh, that truth was what God and, and state said it was, God and king, for the, for the most part, and of course, God being, for most of that time, the, the, the Roman Catholic Church until the Protestant Reformation comes along, and, and uh, state being uh, divinely sanctioned kings, like the king of England, who was not only the head of state, but the head of church. And that's an important point. The men who signed the Declaration of Independence, although they many of them were devout Christians, uh, again, a, a whole range of, of different belief systems, but I think it, what all of them would have said was, we don't think it's a good idea for the, the head of state to also be the head of the church, and that's where this idea of separation of church and state uh, emerges, uh, fitfully at first, but certainly in the Constitution it is solidified in the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. Uh, and of course, the Constitution nowhere mentions God other than a passing reference to uh, the date being in the year of our Lord, 1787. Let's diverge here for a moment and talk about the Enlightenment. Who was being enlightened and about what? Well, the Enlightenment is a whole tumultuous movement that affects religion, philosophy, science. All of these things come bubbling together up out of uh, the the post-Renaissance period, essentially, when the, the notion that the rational mind could understand the laws of nature, the laws of the universe, and those laws of nature that uh, people like Newton were, were formulating were then being applied to the political, and polit uh, the political world as well, the financial world. Uh, so you have uh, people writing revolutionary things, uh, not just about uh, politics, like Thomas Jefferson writing this revolutionary document, but people like Adam Smith uh, writing the, uh, the Wealth of Nations, which is a, a, a radical new approach to the notion of, of capitalism. Uh, so all of these things are all bubbling around the surface. You also have tremendous uh, advances in science. Two of the most extraordinary examples in many ways of what the Enlightenment meant are, are, are two of the most prominent Americans of this time, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson. They weren't enlightened in every respect. We, we know that. Jefferson was certainly uh, had blinders on when it came to slavery. Uh, Franklin uh, also had uh, similar blinders up until a point. And then um, Franklin had uh, other <laughs> shortcomings that we can point to, but they were men who studied law, they read the classics, they studied practical invention, they studied the, the, uh, the natural world to understand science. So you had this tremendous, tremendous international exchange of ideas and revolutionary notions about how the universe works, and certainly that spilled over into people's belief systems. Can you describe the role that Jefferson played in drafting the Declaration of Independence? Jefferson was uh, not the man in search of celebrity for himself. He was, he was quiet. He was uh, uh, somewhat unassuming. Uh, he was not one to stand up and speak. Jefferson was far more reserved. He had just written a... Uh, 
a widely published piece uh, about freedom and independence uh, in Virginia, and uh, that was base, the basis for his literary fame or claim at that time. So he was more or less given the job of drafting this declaration, and as much as it is uh, a, a truly an accomplishment of, of genius and a, and a statement for the ages in many ways, uh, it borrowed liberally, as uh, uh, as we might say in modern parlance. He he downloaded, he sampled from from other writers of the time. He drew heavily on on writers like John Locke, one of the key uh, European uh, English writers of the Enlightenment. Um, he drew from the writings of uh, of his own mentor, George Mason, another Virginian who was largely overlooked in this period. When we talk about concepts of freedom and liberty, they were different concepts in 1776 than they are in 2005. Can you distinguish those for us? Oh, I think I think so. Very, very different. The fundamental ideas were probably the same. But you have to remember that we're talking about men who were writing in a time when most people knew freedom or liberty of any sort. This was a time when, when most people literally were servants to someone. The ma- vast majority of the population in the world was in servitude. There was not yet uh, the sort of free-minded working class and uh, business class, entrepreneurial class that would emerge eventually. So we have to uh, really put this into the context of its time. Well, we should also consider the context of the freedom or lack of freedom that women suffered. Oh, absolutely. This is a consideration that wasn't even on the radar for Jefferson and his colleagues, although one of the great exchanges of letters in in American history and something that's so worth going back and rereading is the exchange between Abigail and John Adams, and very often on this very question. Uh, Abigail Adams, in many ways, is is the first American feminist, and she writes to him while they're well before the declaration is signed, um, please, sir, I would, uh, I, I implore you to consider the ladies, remember the ladies in your new system of laws, remember that men would be tyrants if they could. Um, and he, she, he, she is basically asking Adams to give women independence, to give them equality. He sort of laughingly responds, Madam, I assure you we are not going to give up our manly duties and obligations. She's sort of put down by John Adams. But, um, of course, at that time, most women were, at best, beloved wives, but in many cases, servants and, and possessions. In this edition of Radio Curious, we're talking with Kenneth C. Davis from his home in southern Vermont about his book, Don't Know Much About History, Everything You Need to Know About American History But Never Learned. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Ken, let's talk about the role of the Iroquois Confederacy and the concepts of that nation as they were taken into the Declaration of Independence and in some cases left out in specific relationship to the role of women. Well, probably a great many people hear you say the Iroquois Confederation, and they're scratching their heads and saying, what, well, what are he even talking about? certainly wasn't something included in my school books or textbooks when I was growing up. Um, essentially, the Iroquois Confederacy, or Iroquois League, was a grouping of five, later six, 
tribes in upstate New York and northern New England. They had been fighting uh, amongst themselves literally for centuries, very, very vicious intertribal fighting. Uh, sometimes it, it involved the taking of prisoners and, and torturing them and executing them. Sometimes, and, and this was usually as a, as a blood vengeance, act of blood vengeance. If someone was killed, well, then you had to go and kill somebody else from the other tribe in, in, to exact an eye for an eye of sorts. The Iroquois finally set, set, get together and say, this isn't working. We have to come up with something else. And there was actually a, a, a person, uh, a, an Indian leader, named Hiawatha, not the Hiawatha of the uh, famous Longfellow poem that some of us had to remember as children, but a real character named Hiawatha who was a peacemaker and got the five tribes to sit together and create a confederacy in which they had a true constitution. In 1751, in other words, 25 years before the Declaration of Independence, Benjamin Franklin was already thinking about this idea, how to create uh, some kind of union among the English colonies in America. And he writes to, to a friend, it would be a very strange thing if six nations of ignorant savages, that's his words, should be capable of forming a scheme for such a union and be able to execute it in such a fashion that it has subsisted for ages and appears indissoluble. Um, so Franklin wrote that well before the Declaration, and he thought maybe something would work for uh, just as well for 10 or a dozen English colonies, not even really thinking about independence quite yet, but just a sort of forming a union that would uh, provide some strength, stability, safety, uh, mutual uh, uh, help. One, uh, many historians have said that this Iroquois Confederacy provided some framework to the United States Constitution, and that's a bit of a reach. But one thing that the, um, the signers of the Constitution and Declaration left out that the Iroquois con uh, included was the fact that um, uh, women had equal rights in the Iroquois Confederacy. And, of course, it would be a long time uh, coming before women got the vote, let alone equal rights in America. Let's talk about the title to your book, Don't Know Much About History. The kind of history that is taught to most people in American schools is different than what you write about. Why? Well, I think, for, first of all, when, when most people hear the word history, they groan. They hear uh, American history or any kind of history, and they think, ugh, boring, dull. De learning dates and battles and speeches. It's a long list of memorization. And that's largely the fault of, of textbooks, which are written by professors to be read by other professors instead of uh, students who uh, are not interested necessarily in, in documents and, and dry dates. Um, what I try and do in, in Don't Know Much About History and all the Don't Know Much About Books is uh, tell real stories of real people. Uh, that's what history is about. It's, it's sometimes remarkable people doing remarkable things. Sometimes it's very ordinary people doing remarkable things in a, in a very modern context, for instance. Uh, we often think about history as being the accounts of generals and kings and presidents, but 50 years ago, a, a single woman on a, on a bus in Alabama changed history. Uh, and I'm speaking, of course, of Rosa Parks. So history has to include those extraordinary stories of real people who do remarkable things. I've always believed that history is something that happens to real people in real places, and if you treat it that way and treat it with some humor and irreverence, um, it becomes a lot more interesting and memorable and meaningful. How do you compare your book with Howard Zinn's book of the people's history of North America? 
Uh, Howard's Inn has has had an enormous impact on many historians of recent time because he wanted to voice the history of the people who got left out of the history books. And so he had a tremendous influence on me uh, from that perspective uh, when I set out to, to begin my research. Um, he told the stories of women, of blacks, of the Native Americans, of the working man, um, the people whose voices were clearly left out of uh, the textbooks when I, were gro- when I was growing up in, in the 1960s and, and early 70s. I think a lot of that influence of, of Zinn has been reflected in some of the uh, more modern uh, textbooks. Clearly, Howard Zinn is also writing from a very, very political perspective, uh, and I would say that um, while my books have been derided occasionally as liberal, and I don't even know what that necessarily means, I, I try and tell the truth, and um, I, I like to think of myself as an equal opportunity basher, uh, as, as tough on Democrats as on, uh, as on Republicans. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not writing from the, the very distinct and sharp political perspective that a Howard Zinn is writing from. My own daughter um, recently uh, described my book as middle of the road, and I'm not sure, <laughs> I'm not sure if she meant that as a, as a compliment or not. But um, what, I think what, what my point is that I'm, I try and tell a historically accurate an interesting version of history as opposed to a politically correct one or, a, or one that's um, uh, tilted in one uh, direction or another. There's a psychiatrist at UCLA named Peter C. Wybro, author of a book called American Mania, More is Not Enough. And one of the theses in his book is that the people who came to North America were not satisfied with what they had in their own country. And he believes and writes that those people have created a gene pool that's slightly different than the gene pool that is created by the people who stayed in their native country. Do you have any thoughts on that? It's a fascinating. Uh, it's a fascinating idea, and, and I'm not sure if he if he means it metaphorically or actually biologically. So, so I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm I not sure. But but I I, th- I think that that it's very true to some extent. But on, on another level, it's part of you know a sort of American mythology. But it's it, there's no question that throughout more than 200 years of history, uh, each successive group until now, we should add, um, has done better than the group before it. And sometimes the, the, the progress is slow and halting, and it's much faster for some than for others, clearly. But, but that, has been, that has been the American dream, and that's what Thomas Jefferson, I believe, was talking about when he used that uh, wonderful phrase in the Declaration of Independence, pursuit of happiness. He wasn't talking about pursuit of things. In fact, his, uh, his predecessor, John Locke, had used the phrase life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Property was very important to these people who came to America. As I said earlier, these were people who couldn't have owned things in, their, in many of their own countries because everything belonged to either the church or the state. Here was an opportunity to come to a place where one could achieve property ownership, of course, sometimes at the expense of, of the people who were already here. And that's an, another chapter in the American story that was sadly overlooked in, in my school books, the, the treatment of, of the, the Native Americans. Um, but there's no question that that has 
been part of the American character. And I think that Tocqueville writes about that back in the 1830s when he comes to America and writes um, Democracy in America. Um, part of the problem with that is that many people have translated pursuit of happiness into pursuit of things. Um, and I'm not sure that that's what Jefferson had in mind with that phrase. Uh, a sense of contentment, a sense of liberty, a sense of personal satisfaction. Um, but very much uh, throughout our history, that's gotten confused with uh, the pursuit of um, more, 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 more stuff. That's why probably even, even though we've been involved with the pursuit of happiness, um, very few Americans seem to find it. If we accept the concept that with a knowledge of history, we can better understand where we are now. Where would you suggest that people look to get a usable knowledge of history? For all the talk about Americans hating history, what I've discovered in talking to people over, around the country over the past 15 years, and I should note that don't know much about history first appeared 15 years ago, but it is out now in a completely revised, updated, and expanded edition that reflects, first of all, the history of the past 20 years uh, in, in some depth, and as, as well as going back and, and revising some of the things that we've learned about earlier moments in, in, in American history. My a sense of the American public right now is that Americans don't hate history, to put it simply. They just hate the very dull version they got growing up. And when you look at the bestseller lists, for instance, which are, you know, a, a reasonable barometer of, of interest in, in uh, some of these things, you see a tremendous uh, renaissance. It's almost a golden age in writing about American history. You have people like McCullough writing about John Adams or, or George Washington, um, Joseph Ellis writing Founding Brothers, uh, a major biography of Hamilton, a major biography of, of Jefferson in the past two years. So I think that there is a tremendous uh, appetite for American history uh, uh, among the American public. It certainly is true when I talk to people around the country. Just people do want it in this human uh, format rather than the long list of, of academic uh, uh, recitations we often got as, as children or, or students in high school or college. Kenneth C. Davis, author of Don't Know Much About History, thanks for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we leave, can you tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately? I can, uh, I'm looking at two right now that I'm, I'm, uh, I've just finished, uh, and they're both, well, one is a biography and one an, uh, an autobiography. The first is um, the biography of Diane Arbus, uh, which I had to read after seeing a, a dis display of her photographs mounted in, in New York at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It was a fabulous show, and, and so I went to read her biography, which is by Patricia Bosworth. And there's also a wonderful uh, uh, new memoir by... I'm going to struggle with her name. Luong Ung is her name. She's Cambodian, and she wrote a book called Lucky Child, um, which really describes her coming to America as a Cambodian refugee uh, and being the lucky child in the sense that some of her family was left behind, including a sister. Uh, and she describes the process of coming to America and trying to... Um, get become American, uh, and then going back to Cambodia and meeting the sister who got left behind. And of course, she is the lucky child. She herself is. And um, it's, a, it's a heartbreaking and uh, unusual book, and I highly recommend it. Kenneth C. Davis, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. It's been
been my great pleasure to be with you and uh, pursue happiness. Kenneth C. Davis is the author of Don't Know Much About History, Everything You Need to Know About American History But Never Learned. The books he recommends are Diane Arbus, A Biography, by Patricia Boswell, and Lucky Child, A Daughter of Cambodia Reunites with the Sister She Left Behind, by Luan Ung. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.